I want to talk about how to face the trials of life. How to face the trials of life. Sunday morning we looked at this text and talked about going down to Egypt. But tonight we're going to look at this text again and talk about how to face the trials of life. Genesis 12 beginning at verse 10 through verse number 20. Let's look at it. It says, There was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. They will kill me, but let you live. Please say you're my sister, so it will go well with me, well for me, because of you and my life will be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, so the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. He treated Abram well because of her, and Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now here's your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him and they sent him away with his wife and all he had. One of the wonderful things about Scripture is that it doesn't sugarcoat its heroes. All the men and women that God used in Scripture possessed character flaws. Jacob was a liar and a swindler. Solomon was polygamous like his father David. The disciples constantly failed Jesus Christ, even denying him before his resurrection. Peter specifically had anger and pride issues. He was always putting his foot in his mouth and thinking before he spoke. This is also true with Abraham who is called the father of the faithful. He's the father of those who believe. And even though Abraham is given as a model in the Old and New Testament of a man of faith, we see that men of faith sometimes fail. The reality is we all fail. We all have character issues. We all have flaws. In fact, Paul, possibly the greatest Christian that ever lived, he said this in Romans chapter 7. Look at Romans 7, 15. He said, I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Have you ever felt like that? I know what I want to do, but I don't do it, and I end up doing what I hate. There's this war that takes place inside of us. There's this struggle that takes place inside of us. It's this battle between the flesh and the spirit and they are opposed to each other. That's what Paul talked about in Galatians chapter 5. And so Paul says, hey, I I want to do right and good is in me that wants to do the right thing but I can't do the right thing and I do the very thing that I hate. We've all been there. You see, one of the greatest catalysts of sin in the life of believers and non-believers alike are trials. Trials like fire demonstrate the weaknesses in our character. Trials can bring out the best in us or they can bring out the worst in us. Amen? You see, with Abraham, one of the weaknesses of his character was lying. And in our text tonight, he lies about his wife to protect himself and almost loses her. 
Maybe he learned to lie as a young boy and what we see in this passage is that this pattern of lying is still in his life even after God called him. Maybe as a young child he knew that if I lie I can protect myself and keep myself from getting in trouble. Maybe he learned that I can lie and keep myself from getting a spanking. Maybe he learned to tell a lie when his brother's out in the field and his dad wants to know who took the cookie out of the cookie jar. He can point to his brother in the field and say, hey, my brother took it and he knew to get his way out of it was to tell a lie. And that character flaw followed him all the days of his life. And so we see in our text that God allows a trial to come along and expose and deal with the character flaw in his life. Now, here's the thing. This trial didn't eradicate his lying, but it brought it to the surface. It exposed it so that God could begin to work on it in his life. We'll see this character flaw again in Genesis chapter 20 verse 2 when Abraham lies to Abimelech to protect himself. In other words, this isn't the first time Abraham's going to lie to protect his life. He's going to do it later on in his life. I just want to simply ask you tonight before we move on, what character flaw shows up in your life when a trial comes? Is it anger? Is it impatience? Anxiety? Even lying as it is with Abraham, what shows up in your life when trials come along? The reality is something exposes itself when problems and trials come. Maybe it's simply a pity party where we frown and we fear and we get anxious and stressed out. Something comes to the surface when problems come into our lives. And God's trying to deal with it. Amen? And so as we look at our text tonight, we're going to learn some principles about how to respond to trials so that we can be more faithful to God when the trials of life come to us. And so we see that Abraham, he doesn't handle this trial properly. The famine comes and he goes down to Egypt. He is an example in failure. But from his model of failure we can learn some lessons from his failure. In fact, Scripture teaches us that even the failures of God's people are given to us as examples. And so if you're taking notes and filling in the blanks, here's the number one lesson we can learn. Believers must expect trials. Believers must expect trials. When Abraham gets to the land of Canaan, the text tells us that there is a famine We aren't told the cause of the famine. It could have been a drought. It could have been diseased crops. It could have been a plague of locusts. It could have been simply a failed harvest. But there is a famine in the land and the text tells us that he goes down to Egypt. Now here's the thing. A famine comes in the land and God has told him that I'm going to bless you. I'm going to prosper you. I'm going to take you, take care of you. But when this famine comes, Abraham is probably shocked. He's probably dismayed. His heart probably sunk down in his chest and he's probably thinking, why did I leave my family? Why did I leave my homeland? Why did I leave everything behind to follow God and now I've got a problem. He left everything to obey God. He left everything to be obedient to God and it led him straight into a trial. 
His hometown Ur was near the Euphrates River and it was a very fruitful and rich area. It was quite possible that Abraham had never experienced famine before. He had never had a, a, a night where he lay down with his belly empty. He had never known what it was to be without but now he and his family were in trouble. They're now in a famine. But can I tell you something? Trials are a common experience for those who follow God. I wish I could tell you that when you give your life to Jesus that you're going to get to tiptoe through the tulips and everything's going to be okay. That when you give your life to God that you'll be problem free. That everything's going to be just like you're on a cruise ship somewhere and you can just lay back and everything's just going to be hunky-dory and you're going to be fine and every need's always going to be taken care of and you'll never struggle and you'll never suffer and there'll never be any problems. But here's the thing. When you you decide to follow God. There's going to be some problems and there's going to be some bad days and there's going to be some storms and there's going to be some difficulty along the way. Can I tell you, there's going to be some hard times when you choose to follow God and live in obedience to Him. We're going to experience problems. In fact, many times our problems are going to increase because we follow God. In fact, sometimes following God, problems seem to chase us down, don't they? They seem to multiply sometimes, do they not? Sometimes our problems are natural. We're living in a fallen world. We're living in a sinful world. And so there's droughts and tsunamis and sickness and death and we're still affected by these things even though we're following God. But here's the thing, we're also in a spiritual battle. We're in a spiritual warfare and sometimes that means there's persecution. Can I tell you, there is a very real enemy and his name is Satan. He is our adversary. He is our rival and he wants to take you out. He wants to destroy you. He wants to keep you from following God. Jesus says, the thief cometh not but to steal, kill and destroy. He doesn't want you to make heaven your home. He doesn't want you to go all the way on your journey with God. And so he's going to try to take you out with everything he can. Hallelujah. Satan doesn't want us to follow God so he'll work very hard to discourage us and make us turn away from God. That was his plan with Job. He brought sickness and bankruptcy and death all for the purpose of making Job curse God. And ultimately, all trials are used by God to help believers grow. Can I tell you that when trials come, God has a purpose for them. When trials come, God has a plan for them. When trials come, God has something that He wants to do for them. They create perseverance. Trials come and they build character. Trials come and they build hope in our lives. Listen to Romans 5, verse 3 and 4. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions. I wish some people would just get mad enough at the devil that when trials come, you can rejoice. That when problems come, you can still come into the house of God and lift your hands and praise the name of Jesus. That when problems come, you can still shout and you can still dance and you can still have the joy of the Lord in your life. Because here's the thing, Satan don't know what to do with you when you can still bless the Lord and rejoice in your affliction. Hallelujah. We rejoice in our afflictions. That's not most of us. We moan in our affliction. Is it not? 
we moan and have a pity party in our affliction. But Paul says we rejoice in our affliction because we know that affliction produces endurance. You want to stay on this journey? You got to rejoice in your affliction. Because when you can rejoice in it, your affliction will produce endurance. And your endurance will produce character. Can I tell you, that's what God wants. He wants character. Well, preacher, I thought God wanted me happy. Oh, God wants you holy. He could care less about whether you're happy or not. He wants you holy. He wants you Christ-like. Amen? I got to get in better shape if I'm going to preach like this. And character produces hope. We've got to expect trials and problems. That's the first lesson we learn is that you got to expect trials and problems. We discern this not only from Abraham's story but throughout Scripture. Joseph, he had a vision of his parents and brothers bowing down to him and soon after, he sold into slavery. Moses killed a man expecting to be Israel's deliverer and right after that he spends 40 years in the wilderness. Elijah prophetically spoke against Ahab and Israel and he was immediately sent to the brook Cherith to be alone and after some time the brook dried up. Trials come to those who follow God. James 1, 2, Consider a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials. Notice he said when, not if. He essentially says that we should expect Trials. First Peter four twelve. Don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you, as if something unusual were happening to you. Here's the thing: some people go through a problem as a believer, and it's like it shocks them and amazes them. He, he says, "Don't be surprised when it comes, as something strange were happening. Expect problems. Trials are a part of life. They are a part of following God. And here's the thing." Tonight, you're going through a trial, coming out of a trial, or you're about to go into one. That's where you are. I don't mean to be a doomsday preacher, but that's where you are. You're either in one, coming out of one, or about to go in one. That's just where you live. We should expect trials. Let me move on or I won't finish. Number two, believers must recognize that with each trial comes a temptation. The next thing we discern about trials from Abraham's example is that every trial comes with a temptation. In this text, I see two possible failures from Abraham. When the famine comes, Abraham immediately leaves the promised land and goes to Egypt. Also, we see that he sets a plan to lie about his wife by saying that she is his sister to protect himself. Now, ultimately, through both decisions, Abraham decides to rely on himself and his wisdom instead of God's. Now, before I go on and talk about when the trial coming, with the trial comes temptation, I want to briefly mention that trials are also a time of testing. Here's the thing. Trials are a time of testing by God, and they're also a time of 
temptation by Satan. Let me talk about how God uses trials as a time of testing and purifying of His people. Look at John 15 verse 1 and 2. I am the true vine and my Father is the vineyard keeper. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, He removes and He prunes every branch branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. He says every branch that does not bear fruit, He prunes. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will produce more fruit. Pruning is a cutting away of all the dead or damaged branches, and it implies pain. We don't like pain, but God wants to prune you, and it's going to be painful. And he says that every branch that is fruitful, he's going to cut at it so that it can bear more fruit. Because here's the thing, God doesn't want just faithfulness, God wants fruitfulness. Let me say it again. God doesn't want just faithfulness. God also wants fruitfulness. And I believe that's what happened with Abraham. He had been faithful. He had obeyed God. And so now God is pruning him so that he can be more faithful and more fruitful. And so God, he didn't waste any time in preparing Abraham for the great call on his life. He immediately sends him into the famine. He immediately sends a test. He sends a trial so that he can start pruning him and cutting away old habits and sinful attitudes and self-reliance and the fear of man. You see, all these old attitudes were unfit for Abraham's calling and this is true for us as well. You see, God will always send us into trials so that he can train us to become godly. God will allow trials and times of testing to come so that he can build character in our life. Listen to James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. Consider it great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing or trying of your faith produces endurance. But endurance must do its complete work. In other words, don't shortcut the process so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. God wants to take the trials and the times of testing so that He can change your life. You can't just say what God wants to produce in you. He wants to produce Christ in you. when, When you look in the mirror, you want to see more and more of Jesus in the mirror. And how does God do it? He just does it through testing. He does it through the fiery furnace, the trials of life. God uses trials for our good. He does it to make us stronger. He does it to make us better. However, Satan wants to use trials as a means of temptation. And so the question we have to answer concerning our passage is, why was it a sin for Abraham to leave the promised land? Why was it a sin for Abraham to go down to Egypt. Here's what F.B. Meyer said. In the figurative language of Scripture, Egypt stands for alliance with the world and dependence on an arm of the flesh. I talked about this Sunday morning. Egypt is a symbol or a type of the world. And Scripture bears this out. Listen to Isaiah 31 verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and who depend on horses. They trust in the abundance of chariots and in the large number of horsemen. They do not look to the Holy One of Israel and they do not seek the Lord's help. Scripture bears it out that going to Egypt is not wise. Now, we have to understand and it has to be noted that throughout Israel's history, God at times called His people to go to Egypt for safety. 
We sit with Jacob and his family. During a famine, Joseph, he's second in command. He's under Pharaoh. And God tells Jacob, hey, you need to go to Egypt. And there you'll find refuge. And there you'll be spared through the famine. Listen to Genesis 46, verse 3 and 4. God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you back. Joseph will put his hands on your eyes. So God told Jacob, go down to Egypt. Joseph will take care of you there. But you're going to come back to the promised land. And you're going to die in the promised land. Okay, we see the same thing with Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. When Herod was killing babies, God told Joseph, take the family and go to Egypt. Listen, Matthew 2.13. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So there were times God told his people, You need to go to Egypt for safety. So the fact that Abraham left Canaan and went down to Egypt by himself doesn't mean that Abraham sinned. The problem is the fact that Abraham didn't seek God. He didn't build an altar. He didn't pray. He didn't seek God's voice. And here's the thing. God never called him to go to Egypt. God called him to Canaan. And so here's the thing. Abraham got anxious. Abraham become afraid. Abraham got worried. And he took things into his own hands. Going to Egypt was a picture of his self-reliance. Going to Egypt was saying, God, I'll take care of this myself. And that's where he got into trouble. The trial became a temptation and Abraham failed. What God was using to try to test him and make Abraham better ended up being a temptation and Abraham failed. Here's the thing. With every trial, there is a temptation. In other words, what God wants to use to help us grow, Satan wants to use to cause us to fall. Let me say it this way. What God wants to use to make us stronger, Satan wants to use to make us stumble. You see, every trial comes with an opportunity to grow or fall further into sin. Abraham had the opportunity to trust God, to seek God while in the famine or to trust himself. Abraham chose to take things into his own hands and trust in his own wisdom rather than relying on God. He chose to sin rather than practice his faith. Let me illustrate it. When we're stuck in traffic, there's a temptation to become impatient, anxious, or even angry. When there is conflict at work or in our family, there's a temptation to hold grudges, to respond harshly, or even cut people off. You have to choose correctly. You see, when trials come, we have an op- the opportunity to grow in patience, love, and generous, or we have the opportunity to sin and build even deeper strongholds. So let me ask you, what are your common negative responses to trials? Lying, anger, impatience, throwing a pity party, fill in the blank. How do you normally respond when trials come. Because I can promise you this, Satan knows what your inclinations are and those are going to be the very temptations that you encounter when you face a trial. But if you'll become aware of your tendencies and if you'll become aware of what God wants to do in your life through the trial, 
you can respond better when the next trial comes. You have to understand, hey, God wants to use this to make you better. But if you respond the wrong way, instead of becoming better, Satan will use it and make you bitter. With every trial, there is a temptation. You can come out stronger or you can stumble. Abraham failed. And it's the same for us. Either you're going to pass it or you're going to fail. Depending on how you respond. Let me move on. Number three. Believers must seek God's wisdom while in trials. As we consider Abraham's failure to seek God in the trial, it gives us our next principle. We've got to seek God's wisdom when trials come. Again, we see that Abraham, he headed straight to Egypt. He didn't build an altar and pray. He didn't question God or ask for God's will in the situation. He took everything in his own hands. And I'm afraid that many times we do the same thing. We'll make decisions without ever seeking God. Trials will come, problems will come, and we'll make a decision in haste and never seek God's will about it. We'll get anxious and we'll start scheming and plotting and planning and we'll never say, God, what should I do? God, what do you want me to do? Which direction should I go? God, which way should I turn? But here's the thing. If we're going to respond correctly to trials, we've got to seek God's will. We've got to ask God for wisdom. But here's the thing. How do we find wisdom when it comes to trials? Letter A. We seek God's wisdom through prayer. We seek God's wisdom through prayer. James 1.5 If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and without criticizing and it will be given to him. In the context of teaching on trials, James says we must pray for wisdom because God gives generously to all who ask. I believe that when you ask God, God will answer. James 4.2 will tell us that we have not because we ask not. The reason so many people fumble through life is because they never take the time to pray. Amen? The reason so many people just, just, just go aimlessly through life, especially believers sometimes, is because they never take the time to pray or we, or we say a little lay me down to sleep kind of prayer and we wait five minutes and God don't speak and so God, I'm in too much of a hurry and I can't wait on you and so we run ahead and do our own thing and then we got to pray months down the road, oh God, bail me out because we wouldn't wait for God to answer. Amen. But he says, if you ask, God will give generously. And he'll do it without criticizing. He'll do it without finding fault. What does that mean? That means not, God's not going to be mad if you come and say, God, I need wisdom and need, need to know what to do. God's not going to get mad with you. He'd much rather you come to him and say, God, I need to know what to do instead of months down the road, God, can you bail me out of this? Amen. Trials are meant to make us more dependent on God. And yet here's the thing that gets me. So many times instead of them making us more dependent on God, we want to run from God. You see, a trial is an invitation to pray. Write that down. A trial is an invitation to pray and wait on God. And here's the thing. Sometimes His answer will be removing the trial. Sometimes his answer will be giving us perseverance to go through the trial, but always with his answer he gives us wisdom to properly respond to the trial. But here's letter B. We seek God's wisdom through Scripture. 
Not only prayer, but through Scripture. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. David said that when he studied God's word, the Lord turned the lights on. He could see what path to take. Can I tell you, Scripture many times tells us exactly what to do. I've heard people say, Preacher, I want to know what God's will is. Read the book. Read the book. The will of God is the Word of God. 99% of the time, the will of God is the Word of God. Read the book. And where it doesn't give exact answers, it gives principles to follow. Concerning everything under the sun. If you can't find an exact answer, I promise you, you can find an illustration, you can find a story, you can find a principle that'll help you find out what decision you need to make. Amen? Let her see. We seek God's wisdom through the counsel of mature Christians. Many times God gives us wisdom through other believers. Scripture calls the church the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12. One person is the eye, another person is the hand or the feet. And here's the thing. Many times we spiritually impoverish ourselves by neglecting the resources within the body. And here's the thing. We don't want to reach out to other people because we don't want to make ourselves vulnerable to other people. And for so long, people have been hurt by the church that we don't want to make ourselves vulnerable to other people. Because for so long, people have been gossiped about in the church, we we don't want to open up to nobody in the church. The church is... Not a safe place many times where we can tell people what's going on and find wisdom. But Proverbs 11 and 14 says, Without guidance, people fall. But with many counselors, there is deliverance. And then look at it in the New King James. It says, Where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. There's victory and protection when you have godly counselors around you. If you can surround yourself with people, you can find safety and protection. We need to surround ourselves with good godly people. Listen, you can't take every, uh, every person's advice, but you can find some good godly people and you can listen to them and let them pour into your life. Amen? Now with all of that being said, Abraham didn't have many of the resources that we have. He lived before Scripture was written. He he, he didn't have Genesis to Revelation like we did. He lived in a land full of pagans. But here's the thing. God could still communicate with him. God could speak audibly. God could send angels. God could give visions and dreams. And here's God can still do those things today. God can still give dreams. God can still give visions. God can still speak supernaturally. Uh, I, I, I don't want to talk about, I don't necessarily believe in extra biblical revelation. Listen, it's got to agree with the Bible. Amen? It's got to line up with this word because if it's, people say it's extra biblical, you better make sure it lines up with this. I believe the Holy Spirit can lead us and He can guide us, but ultimately it better line up with this book. But when we go through trials, we've we got to seek God's wisdom. We need to find out what God wants us to do. So let me move on. Number four. Believers must consider unbelievers while in trials. We've got to consider the watchful eye of unbelievers while we're going through our problems and our trials. One can't but notice that an unbeliever, Pharaoh, rebukes Abraham who was supposed to be a blessing to the world. 
It seems that Pharaoh could discern that his sickness was Abraham's fault since everybody in Pharaoh's palace had a skin disease except Pharaoh. Some commentators implied that it may have been a sexually transmitted kind of disease because it came upon the males. Sarah didn't have it. She's a female, but the the men were plagued. That's just a little insight. And so they're plagued with this disease. Sarah doesn't have it. So they probably begin to, to question her. She probably breaks down and begins to tell them what happened. And so Pharaoh, he gets so upset. And I want you to notice his concluding words. In the original language, he said four words. Here, wife, take, go. That's what he said in the original language. He's so upset. That's all he could. Here, wife, take, go. He's mad. I've been mad too. And guess what Abraham says in reply? Absolutely nothing. What could he say? He'd plotted and planned and schemed. Tried to get the upper hand. And he'd been found out. He'd lost his witness and he stained his integrity. The pagan king had shown himself to be more righteous than Abraham. I said Sunday morning that Abraham should have been a blessing and he ended up being a curse. He should have been light in a dark world and he ended up being a curse to him. But here's the thing, it happens to believers even today. We'll go to the same places and do the same things as the world does. We'll respond the same way as the world when going through problems and facing trials and we'll lose our witness. We'll get just as mad as they do when problems come. And if we aren't careful, there's some believers that may even allow things to come out of their mouths that the worldly people let come out of their mouths. And I can promise you they're watching and they're listening. Listen to what 1 Peter 2 verse 11 and 12 says. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and temporary residents to abstain from fleshly desires that war against you. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that in a case where they speak against you as those who do what is evil, they will by observing your good works glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter said that we should abstain from sinful desires and live such good lives that pagans see our good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. He's talking about when God comes back, when God returns, that we should live such good lives that they'll glorify God by our chaste witness during trials. King Nebuchadnezzar, he worshipped God after he saw how the three Hebrew boys responded to the trial. Look at Daniel 3.28. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Pray to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. He, he said, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They stood their ground and would not bow down to a false god. And he gave praise to the only God there was. 
because of how they responded in a trial. How we respond in trials is very important. It's not only important for us and our families, but also for unbelievers. Their lives could depend on it. Listen to Colossians 4 and 5. Act wisely toward outsiders making the most of the time. You see, your trial may open a door for you to witness whether it's directly or indirectly to someone who doesn't know Christ. You see, what you're going through could open a door for you to be a witness to somebody else. And how you respond while you're going through it could bring them to Jesus or push them away from Jesus. Your response to your trial could have an influence on somebody's eternity. It's been said, you're the only Bible that some people is going to read. And so when your trial comes, what kind of Bible are they reading when they look at you? What kind of Jesus are they seeing when they see you in a trial and in a problem? Because Jesus on a cross, the worst trial of all, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The fifth thing, the final thing I want to give you is that believers must keep their eyes on Christ while in trials. What must stand out to us is that Abraham, who is the father of all who believe, is the father of the faithful. He's called a friend of God. He's given to us as a model for to follow. He fails miserably. Again, one of the great things about Scripture is that it never comes covers up the failings of its heroes. It never sugarcoats what they did. David committed adultery and murder, and yet he's a man after God's own heart. Peter and the rest of the disciples denied Jesus in his greatest hour of need. Paul the apostle fought with his co-worker Barnabas leading to a split. If our great men fail, what hope is there for us? In many ways this story could be very depressing, but I think it reminds us of our need to focus on Jesus. Many have fallen away from the church when their pastors or spiritual leaders stumble. And I just want to say to you today, you don't have a perfect pastor. So don't keep your eyes on me. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Because if you keep your eyes on me, I can let you down and I can disappoint you. But we've seen many leaders who are supposed to be leading us let us down. Instead of being marked by holiness, they were marked by pride and discord and deception. And so how can we stay faithful in trials if they can't stay faithful in trials? Certainly Abraham, David, Peter, and Paul, they're models for us to follow, but they are models of men who failed God yet continued to follow Him. And that's, that's the good thing. Even though they failed, they got up and continued to follow God. And I would say to you tonight that even if you have failed, you need to get up and keep on following God. But Christ is our perfect model. Amen. And we have to keep our eyes on Him. You see, if we focus on others, especially when they fail, we'll find ourselves discouraged and ready to give up. 
That's why the writer of Hebrews says this, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 and 3, keeping our eyes on Jesus. In verse 1, he talks about laying aside every weight and besetting sin and running the race that He has set before us. You see, we're running a race. We've got to lay aside the weights. We've got to lay aside the besetting sin. We've got to run the race that's been marked out and set before us. And I just want to say to you tonight, I can't run your race. You can't run my race. You can't run somebody else's race. You've got to run your race. You've got to stay in your lane. You can't get in somebody else's lane. And that's why he goes on to say here, we've got to keep our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame and is set down at the right hand of God's For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. Listen, as you run this race and as trials come, you can't look to your right and you can't look to your left. You can't look to these people around you because if you do, you'll get discouraged. But let me also say there's a tendency if you start looking at other people and you get ahead of them and you think you're doing better than they are, you can even get puffed up with a little pride and think, hey, look at how good I'm doing. But here's the thing. Jesus is our example. He's the author and finish of our faith. And if we're going to be faithful to the end and if we're going to cross the finish, finish line and if we're going to make it we've got to keep our eyes on Jesus because here's the thing people around us may fail prophets and priests and evangelists and pastors may fail but I promise you Jesus ran the race he was faithful to the end and he is the example that did not fail he endured the cross he despised the shame and he will never ever fail you nor me he's the originator and perfecter of our faith and he's the the one that faced the full weight of temptation without fear. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet he was without sin. That's why he can bear the load for us and we can put our full faith in him knowing that he will sustain us and uphold us. When you think that you're about to go under, when you think that the burdens of life are about to overtake you, he can come along and he can lift you up and he can see you through. When you feel like you can't take another step, he'll come along and help you take and he'll help you keep on running he'll help you keep on keeping on because he's been there and he knows what it takes to keep running the race he will see you through amen he's the only one that can help us persevere he can enable us to be faithful in our trials Ken Hughes said this Jesus did not stumble when trials came. His faith never wavered. He did not look to his own devices, but only to God. Abram was a great man of faith, but Christ is the perfect man of faith. Abram left his home and family in order to go to an unknown land, but Christ left heaven in obedience to the Father's call. Abram is known for both his great faith and great failure. Jesus' life was one of unexceptionable faith. His life was all in faith and by faith from beginning to end. Amen. Hallelujah. When we're faced with trials, we've got to focus our attention on the one who saved us and who will perfect us, and that's Jesus Christ. He's our model, and He will faithfully carry us to the end. As I close tonight, trials will come to all of us. And the reality is we'll get through them successfully or we will fail. When trials come, We will trust God and run to Him or we will trust in ourselves and run from Him. And what I've come to find out about trusting in myself and failing during trials of trials is this. First, God is gracious and forgiving. 
Thank God for that. He was gracious and forgiving to Abraham and brought him out of Egypt. We'll talk about that Sunday morning, the path back to Canaan. But second, God doesn't give me a pass on the test. I know the trial's going to come. God's not going to stop until He's done with me. Until I reach the finish line. Because He's got something He wants to do in my life. He's got something He wants to do in your life. You want to know why they circled the wilderness for 40 years the children of Israel did? Because God was trying to do something in their life. And their complaining and their unbelief kept them out of the promised land. Commentators say it 11 day walk from Egypt to the promised land. Now when he brought them out of Egypt, he didn't take them the short way because that would have took them by the way of the Philistines and God knew they weren't ready for war, so he took them a different way. But an 11 day journey from Egypt to the promised land. So he took them another way. He was trying to build their faith by parting the Red Sea, giving them manna, giving them water from the rock. He was trying to build their faith, prepare them, and they get on the brink of it and send spies into the land, try to build their faith, and ten spies come back and say, hey, there's giants in the land, and we can't do it. And so they wandered. He couldn't get Egypt out of them. He brought them out of Egypt, but couldn't get Egypt out of them. Because the entire time they wandered, I want to go back to Egypt. I'm afraid God's got some people like that today. He's brought them out of Egypt, but can't get Egypt out of them. And that's why they go through trial, and they fail, and God is gracious, but they're going to take another lap around that desert. Because God's trying to get Egypt out of them. Because with every trial, there's a temptation. And some people just can't allow God to do what He wants to do in them. And so, God's gracious and God's merciful, but some time passes and they start circling again. I thank God for grace. But I don't want to keep circling around when I don't like taking tests too much. I don't like taking too much of God's test. I like, I, like, I like to try to learn what He wants to show me the first time, but there's been times I've been stubborn. And I've had to go back again. But when God's trying to develop you and work something out of your life, He'll allow times of testing to come. He's not going to give up till He begins to work things out of your life. And you've got to choose how you respond You can get better or you can get better. You can go stronger or you can stumble. Somebody once said this, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. The attitude that we have when it comes to problems will determine the effect it will have on us. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in everything for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Notice he doesn't say give thanks for everything. He says give thanks in everything. As I said earlier, if we can learn how to rejoice in affliction, if we can learn how to be thankful in every situation, if we can learn how to be grateful and find something to be thankful for, even when trials are coming, it would help us go a long way in getting through what we're going through. Let me just say this. If you'll change the attitude, it'll help you get through what you're going through. Amen. 
Because God is still good no matter what you're going through. Amen. And you can find something to be thankful for. And I would say that many times it's our attitude that's missing when it comes to the trials of life. Amen. And so I wonder tonight, is there anybody in the house that may be going through something that could stand at their feet and say, I'm going to bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. Could you stand with me tonight? Hallelujah.